Welcome to a podcast on fire on VI. And Angelica Lee sees dead people in the Pang Brothers directed VI from 2002. It was part of the early millennium horror boom and it was critically acclaimed, award winning. So how does it fare? How does it hold up and so forth in 2018? So let's uh, look uh, back on it for a little bit. Uh, This is now per definition an old movie. Uh, for us, it might feel like, well, this just came out yesterday, so what are you talking about? But regardless, my name is Kenny B, and uh, with me to perhaps uh, reminisce uh, a bit about watching the movie then in the cinemas, uh, watching the movies of the brothers at hand, and perhaps the, uh, some talk of the American remake, what we think of the prospect of an American remake of the eye, who's with me to discuss all of that. It is East Screen, West Screen's uh, Paul Fox. So, how are you, sir? I'm good, and I have to tell you, I see living people. <laughs> I've seen it, seen them all my life. So, you know, no one thinks my powers are special. It, it's more in the boom of like the Sixth Sense had come out, Hideo Nakata's Ring had come out. So, and Hong Kong was starting to do horror as well. But it was not like this was riding on the coattails of another person who had cornea surgery and then sees dead people move it's not a it's not a, as blatant as that it's not so, so it, it seems like it's making a little bit of its own story uh, and all of that so um, we'll see if that holds up or not but I, I certainly have fond memories from back in the day but uh, we are at any rate podcastonfire.com is the flagship show of the podcast on fire network where we discuss hong kong movies new and old as i said this we perceive this as kind of a new movie i think but uh, we look at uh, anything from the 70s and 80s and 90s up to uh, sometimes uh, recent movies uh, as uh, we look at how hong kong functions when working with uh, mainland china and so forth looking at movies such as uh, shockwave and uh, wolf warrior 2 and uh, things like that and uh, some time in the pipeline maybe after this episode is released obviously but in the in the, in the uh, timeline i'm uh, looking to um, uh, get a screen of operation red sea which i've heard uh, good things about as a fun action movie from from director dante lam is that it yes i believe so cool well and i've been a fan of dante for a number of years uh, Mainly his odd movies, like uh, Jiang Hu, The Triad Zone, that kind of Dante Lam, uh, the sort of oddball, uh, quirky Dante Lam, but obviously he's got an eye for action and uh, all of that. Uh, but uh, we are, uh, at any rate, located on podcastonfire.com. Find all the relevant social media links uh, to Facebook and Twitter and so forth at the top of our website or in the show post on our site. Subscribe to us on iTunes, leave a star rating, even a comment. It would be very much appreciated. A little blurb about what you think of the show. I've said this before. If you listen to our George Lamb defaming sessions and uh, want to leave a review connected to that, don't write lame in the review at iTunes because they might perceive that as a bad review. That's not a good thing. Uh, You're welcome to share with us, though, if you think George Lamb is lame or lame. But uh, don't, don't put that word in the review, so... Otherwise, it might be a little bit uh, strange. Five stars, lame. I would appreciate it because I would know that, ah, you've made your determination about George Lamb, uh, an anonymous listener. But iTunes audiences might find it confusing. So don't leave in jokes as (laughs) reviews is my point. At any rate, uh, all of that is located on our site. uh, uh, iTunes Stitcher Radio presence as well uh, if you want to stream us. And uh, you can contact us and all of that. So I'm going to throw over to Paul, who's got his own podcast covering current uh, Hong Kong mainland Chinese movies as well as Western picks and they even do the merger of the two in a way because they had a big old round table on at the time of recording box office smash crazy rich Asians so uh, you you switched up a little bit when you did that episode to uh, discuss uh, di- discuss that from an Asian perspective a little bit more than maybe uh, than maybe other reviewers do so uh, that was a good fun episode despite me having no intention of watching that movie it just doesn't sound compelling to me at all to be honest but uh, I enjoyed the episode nonetheless so uh, plug in your own in your own words in your own way well, thank you. Yes, the show is East Screen, West Screen, and we podcast about a wide variety of stuff, but usually stuff that's related to Hong Kong or China or Asia cinema. And uh, you can find us over at concast.com. I don't even remember now. Was it a favorable watch for you, Crazy Rich Asians? Were you a fan of the book? Or Yeah, I'm, I'm still in, I'm in the middle of the second book right now at the time of this recording, and I really like the books. Um, there's a lot more detail in the books, a lot less humor in the books. I think the humor in the books are, is supposed to be a bit more ironic um, than kind of some of the more in-your-face humor. 
that was part of the, the movie. But the movie was fine. You know, it's a romantic comedy. It's got some a lot of Asian talent, some Asian American talent and some talent from abroad that I really like. So is, is it a tough nut to crack if you don't know anything about anything like it in the case of me? It's super easy because it is simply at its core just a romantic comedy. And if you can get behind, you know, especially U.S. style romantic comedies, it, it is essentially that. And it's I got can't. The bonus. I got a black heart, boys. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> what what it's got is it's got the bonus of having people like Michelle Yeoh and you know Lisa Liu and um, other people who Hong Kong cinema fans will recognize. And it's got some Singaporean talent as well. And it is exactly that. It is a, just a romantic comedy. It is because it they're is. speaking of it like it's a it's a very much a cultural impact. So I'm thinking like there must be subtext in there, therefore that I'm gonna miss yeah, because pe- people don't go to the cinema just to see any old romantic comedy. There must be something there, and I don't wanna miss that. For me, they pulled out a lot of the very specific cultural context that's unique to Singapore and and to you know Southeast Chinese culture. That's a part of the book. And they just kind of stripped it out, uh, you know, because they've only got two hours to to tell a story. So I think that's why it's very, doing very well in the States, because for the average person, you know, like my parents who don't have a strong interest, you know, because I took my dad to watch it and he came away liking it. He said, you know, uh, it's, it's my first time going to the cinema to watch a romantic comedy and it was fun. I was like, OK, great. You know, so I think for the American audience, especially the non-Asian American audience, because obviously Asians want to go out and support it because of the Asian factor in Hollywood, which is a a big political talking point right now. But I mean, for the general, you know, white audience or the non-Asian audience, they can go out there and they can, it's just another romantic comedy. And if it makes them feel good, it makes them laugh. And, you know, they kill two hours, you know, it's a good time. Right on. Well, that's a good a good sales pitch, my friend. So there we are. We're going to take a short, short musical break. And after that, we'll be back to discuss uh, the very much different. Uh, it takes place across different parts of Asia, but it has nothing to do with crazy rich Asians. And it is The Eye from 2002, directed by Oxide Pang and Danny Pang, uh, collectively known as Pang Brothers. So we'll be back after the break to review that very movie and talk of some background as well. So see you in a bit. And welcome back, and uh, this uh, episode contains uh, one movie up for review, but we've got some background notes to go along with it, so I thought we'd uh, make it a single solo review. And it is The Eye from 2002, and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. Angelica Lee stars as Moon, a 20-something Hong Kong resident who's been blind since youth. She becomes the recipient of a cornea transplant, which will finally give her sight and presumably a new lease on life. However, Moon needs to adjust to her new eyes, so she's sent to handsome psychotherapist Wa, played by Lawrence Chow, for some expert counseling. It seems her body may know how the world works, but her vision can't connect the dots. The physical appearances of others surprises her, and she becomes alienated from her still blind friends. And there's an even bigger problem. Yep, Moon sees dead people. Some background and discussion points, and again, we might drop some review notes within the discussion, but, but I think yeah, it's always suitable to uh, talk a little bit about what led up to the creation of the Eye and uh, who the Pang brothers are in this case. And they are twin brothers, Danny and Oxide, and they made their um, Hong Kong cinema debut with the Eye in 2002. But uh, the twins were active in Thailand prior, most notably making the 1999 crime film Bangkok Dangerous. And, and they also actually helmed the... Um, actually had the US remake starring uh, Nicolas Cage, which was a major departure because all of a sudden you had to change the main character's uh, main trait. And that was being mute to someone speaking, fully speaking. But uh, it is Nick Cage, so it's all good, probably and hopefully. Hopefully he brought some fun Cage-isms to that movie. I actually never saw it, but uh, I'm always up for a good time with, uh, you know, there's always going to be something there when you watch a Nicolas Cage movie because, uh, as uh, people say, 
he swings for the fences. He makes choices that are either gonna land or they're not gonna land. But that that's the uh, that's the joy of watching a Nicolas Cage movie. Having said that, did you ever see um, either uh, Bangkok Dangerous, the Thai version or the US version? I have not. I believe I have the Thai version somewhere stuck in the archives on a DVD, but I haven't gotten around to watching it. And uh, I, you know, Nick Cage, I'd kind of watch it i guess at some point i want to see the original first though that's kind of one of the things that's kind of pushed me off and uh i think i just read yesterday that now that uh excuse me henry cavill who plays superman is out of the superman franchise there's an actual push to get nick cage back in as superman so you know go nick (laughs) i'm gonna play superman i'm gonna play more as a spiritual protector (laughs) That's my way into Nick Cage. Like, I'm more of a spiritual <laughs> that's, protector. That, that's very good. <laughs> and then I just do the face-off line. If I were to let you suck my tongue. Uh, but uh, now i got to see Mandy to find some new Cageisms because uh, I love the look of Mandy, even though it might be the most incomprehensible movie ever. Uh, but the delivery of uh, some of Cage's lines in the just-released Mandy seemed like oh, they think that would be funny <laughs> so, you know so who knows he, he, he's likable and uh, let, let's see sometime in the future maybe um, uh, let, let, let's do a Bangkok Dangerous double bill for the show who cares uh, uh, even though one is Thai and one is US Anyway, Danny Pang was uh, hovering around the Hong Kong industry as editor, though, before they came to Hong Kong to direct. And he worked for multiple Andrew Lau films, including on the Infernal Affairs trilogy. And I believe he won a Hong Kong Film Award for his editorial work on the first film. Uh, But he did the entire trilogy for Andrew Lau. The Eye was conceived based on two real-life news stories. One involving a woman who had a cornea transplant that for some reason killed herself a week after. And I don't know if this was something they read out of Thailand, Hong Kong, um, to be honest. Uh, I'm basing this on little notes and blurbs they dropped in uh, the making of documentary for VI. And uh, the other piece of news uh, info and item I, I can't discuss and won't because it spoils the movie. But it is uh, one key set piece in the movie. Uh, is based on um, a real life thing and I'm going to keep it super vague because you, you don't want to know so after you watch the, the eye look up real life incidents or just hit me up on Facebook and I'll tell you what it was uh, the making of even contains uh, news footage from uh, from said real life uh, incidents so the eye made close to 40 million Hong Kong dollars on release making it the 12th most profitable profitable movie that year when, when combined with foreign productions uh, but it was closer to maybe the fifth or sixth most popular movie box office wise amongst uh, the local ones uh, with infernal affairs expectedly being number one that year uh, it was nominated for a couple of technical awards at the Hong Kong Film Awards, but the jury decided it was Angelica Lee's lead performance that stood out the most in her category, and the Malaysian-born actress walked home happily with a Best Actress Award that night. I believe she was nominated against the likes of uh, Maggie Cheung for Hero and um, Fei Wong for Chinese Odyssey 2002. So, you know, the Hong Kong Film Awards uh, having a history of uh, nominating different genres, um, uh, continuous uh, in that regard so that was um, cool regardless because uh, I was aware of the movie at, at that point I, I think I'd seen it and therefore followed the awards ceremony and I was um, psyched and stoked that um, she ultimately walked home with an award uh, Angelica Lee and uh, they were a hot item there for uh, post VI uh, the pangs uh, whether directing together or uh, one brother directing uh, a certain movie they weren't always uh, dual di- dual directors uh, and they expectedly rode the horror wave uh, they became connected to uh, they made for instance the unrelated sequel to VI in 2004 starring uh, Shu they uh, reteamed with Angelica Lee in Recycle in 2006 uh, they made uh, Forest of Death in 2007, and the Aaron Quark vehicle, the detective, also had horror um, horror elements. Um, and that was also released in 2007. And in the same year, they even found time to go to Hollywood and make their debut with the supernatural horror horror film The Messengers, which grossed about 55 million US dollars, uh, but was not met with much enthusiasm critically. But it was um, it had a sequel or a prequel too, so there was something to the brand name the messengers uh, never saw it personally uh, 
So how about you? Did you have any interest on in seeing uh, the guys who made the eye make a US movie? I haven't seen that one yet, no. Out of disinterest or simply I just it's it's down on the list somewhere. There are other, there's other stuff to watch first. <laughs> right, right on. Yeah. And maybe now with um, with uh, some of their their track record expanded, maybe maybe one can go back to the messengers and see. Well, that was that wasn't too bad. Uh, nice use of something something, or maybe it was totally generic. Who knows? But uh, I I might go back because nowadays, Paul, because I'm not married to high definition. I I, I like to just browse like used. DVDs of past movies and pick them up for like a buck uh, because I don't really care about like everything needs to be sparkly and shiny HD no and uh, therefore you can um, you can uh, do some nice uh, nice inexpensive shopping uh, on out there on the marketplaces so uh, that's uh, maybe maybe I should after this recording to gather up the, the messengers uh, one or two uh, for like five five bucks into my shopping cart and then then we're off. My experience, though, following the Pangs for a few years, because I haven't followed them in, on a consistent basis uh, ever since then, I was often impressed with the production values, including in the eye, and how they really, how they wanted to make seemingly, and, uh, and how they did make Hong Kong cinema seem very, very professional, visually interesting, and some of the movies came with these dramatic punches and twists of note that I really liked, and even in uneven movies, I took away something especially um sort of um end twists um so the i2 i liked decently enough especially come ending time i remember okay it's did its job okay abnormal beauty i thought had a nice little twist by the end that uh, solidified that this was pretty solid actually and uh but i have lost track of their direction from the last 10 years or so so maybe you paul can if you have seen some of the movies uh, from the last 10 years or so, can give us an idea of where do you think they're at now and what your perception is of uh, the quality they put forth or the lack of quality from that they, uh, they infused Hong Kong cinema with. So in, in, in short, what do you think of the Pang Brothers? Well, I, I, you know, initially they were a breath of fresh air, um, especially for the genre of this film that we're talking about, because prior to this, you pretty much, if you had a ghost film in Hong Kong, it was following sort of the troublesome night style of filmmaking, which I love, but everything follows that, you know, it's the, the sort of green light underlit ghost uh, person, everything pretty much happening in kind of the night foggy blue lit kind of areas and this was a breath of fresh air because of their approach to film filming a ghost story and how different it takes and they you know had the advantage of new effects and things like that to play with but still daytime scares is not something that's easy to pull off and they pulled off amazingly well and i'm sure we'll talk about some of those going forward as they continued on it you know by the time they got to recycle the they have a very stylistic look but it was also they were starting to rely a little bit too much on green screen and cgi and i think that started to turn some people off so when they moved over to things like the detective series with aaron kwok it felt like a bit of a return to form they actually did the storm uh the storm warriors sequel which um, a lot of people were not that happy with i thought it was okay but visually it's got kind of their visual look to it, which doesn't really gel with Storm Riders and the kind of dynamic, more colorful comic book look that that film has. So they made, they made it a little bit more um, muted rather than colorful? Is that it's, it? Yeah, it's a little darker. It's got, it's got kind of their color tone style to it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just, you know, Storm Riders was one that kind of set the bar for me for comic style kung fu into into cinema you know they they've they've bounced around a, a couple other things i think things like see you in youtube which they took part in and trick or cheat where they were working with kind of younger generations of actors were okay if you can get behind the, those kind of films and trying to you know get some of the some work with uh, the new up-and-comers as it were I, and I think they've kind of split i don't know that uh, oxide's done a whole lot in recent years i think danny is doing a lot out of mainland China. And as I look at the titles, I mean, it's a lot of, none of the stuff that I've seen, 
but a lot of it is, um, it seems to be supernatural or spiritual. So, um, like I think fairy tale out of, out of Inferno, they both did. That's a fireman thing with, uh, Lao Ching Wan and Louis Koo, which is fine. Um, but then he's got stuff like uh, a bunch of stuff out of 2015, the strange house, the mirror blind spot, something out of 2016 called delusion. They seem like supernatural films, but they're thriller films. And, you know, again, in China, you're kind of limited to what you can do, um, with the narrative in, in those kinds of things. The 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 eye wouldn't fly in China. No, 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 not without not without a major overhaul of the ending somehow, um, which which might have been done if it got China release. I don't know, um, but yeah, that's uh, that would be very problematic. Yeah, it, it may, maybe that's the reason why I stopped following them because maybe things seem too similar, even though that that's just me judging beforehand, and uh, because I, I I didn't mind if that they slotted themselves into a genre I liked Recycle enough even though yes it was majorly uh, like a visual concept like to read about but I remember liking it enough uh, especially liking her as well Angelica Lee but um, I'd I'd be lying if I said that uh, the subsequent movies after VI captured me like VI did Uh, even when they did comedy uh, with Leave Me Alone which they were both involved in uh, but only one of them directed you know, do a leak in Changs and some gunplay or what have you, but I remember it wasn't landing and clicking on all fronts and all of that, but at the time, anyway, it was nice to see them at least do a comedy after VI 2 and maybe VI 10. Uh, they didn't do VI 3 through 9, by the way. I don't, I don't know what the I 10 is actually referencing why it, it needed a 10 in the title, but... Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a spoof. It is? So okay. it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's got a lot of I mean, it's a it's a ghost story, but it's also a bit of a comedy. And I think that part of the joke was directed kind of at the troublesome night stuff, you know, which by that point I think was up into the teens. <laughs> and, Lou, and Lewis had split by that point. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's still it's like you know, well, let's just let's just jump to the I ten and we'll we'll make it a comedy. And um, uh, I think that was part of the gag. Not surprisingly, producers saw opportunity to transfer this story of the eye from Hong Kong and Thailand because it's set in both places to America and, and Mex- to America and Mexico, I believe, and that means the eye was indeed remade in 2008 using the same title. It starred Jessica Alba, and it wasn't the first remake of the eye though, because uh, before it, uh, the Hindi movie Naina had already come out. So uh, remake rights uh, were sold uh, at least two places. The the US version of the eye made about 57 million US dollars worldwide on reportedly a 12 million dollar US dollar budget. So even with promotional costs, I think we can say it's safely say it turned a little bit of a profit, which is sort of nice to see because I I don't know, I got the impression it was sort of dismissed uh, as being a remake one and seen and then quickly forgotten so i was sort of surprised that it made a healthy profit um and it might be solid but here's the problem i think i'm I'm just guessing and maybe you you can share your view on this i think it's the same movie because i don't know if you can and should change too much other than setting and that means us who have seen the eye it's not gonna be nothing's gonna be a surprise and maybe that they maybe that just makes no sense therefore to for us to watch it but for for audiences who might not like subtitles maybe it's a good quality transfer to english language but uh, um i'm still curious to see it uh, but uh, redundancy i think is going to be its middle name when all is said and done or, or what do you think going into it because i know you you have it lined up yeah, I, if you look at the trailer, it looks like a lot of the same scares, a lot of the same narrative beats are all there. Um, not much has changed. It looks a, a, a little more glossy and polished because, again, it's Hollywood. But it doesn't look all that interesting. I mean, they've changed the setting from Thailand and or the U.S. and or I should say Hong Kong, Thailand to U.S. Mexico. And but beyond that, it's it looks like it's a lot of the exact same story beats. And I just was never really that interested to see it when it came out 
um, as a comparative point. And it's something that when, when they do this kind of thing, I, I'm much more akin to say, well, I'm just going to watch the original. Yeah, especially when, when you can smell the fact that you they're probably not going to vary up the story because it, the, the story is good enough as it is. You don't need to... It's not filled with cultural context. That means a ton of rewriting needs to be done. But having said that, well, despite being essentially the same movie, I really liked how they um, remade Dark Water, d- d- despite it having no surprises at all. Well enough acted. I mean, I love Jennifer Connelly, so that's that's an automatic like for me. But she's she's emotionally invested in that, and uh, maybe it also helped that when I saw U.S. Dark Water, I had not seen Japan Dark Water for for a few years. But still, I I remember the major uh, plot beats of it and uh, the resolution and all of that. So th- th- there's an argument for well. You're making the same movie, but you can make it emotionally impactful. And the eye relies on drama and emotional impact, too. So who knows? Who knows? Uh, I'm going to give it a whirl. Uh, but um, as I probably said before, to watch it the day after the original might feel like redundancy. Uh, and uh, you might not give it a fair shot, therefore. So, you know, might wait a, wee, a few weeks and a few months and see if uh, it affects me emotionally because I have nothing against the actress uh, or anything like that. So, and and I was encouraged by the fact that, oh yeah, it was kind of seen at the time, maybe forgotten, but it was widely seen at the time. People paid for this, um, so who knows? Uh, it should be cheap enough to watch it uh, streaming over there in your territory, and I should be able to find a cheap DVD of it uh, somewhere. And just to jump in, if you've not seen the original Eye and you're going to watch the remake, don't watch the trailer because they do spoil a major plot point right there in the trailer, uh, a kind of major twist that happens midway through the film. So avoid the trailer and and watch it. And yeah, you'll you'll be you'll thank me for it later. Exactly. It's not um, the the twist he's talking about. It's not the see dead people thing. It's uh, something that happens an hour in. That's very important. Um, for the last half hour of uh, Hong Kong's VI. So it's a shame that they didn't believe in their product to keep that uh, under wraps. So there it is. But uh, let's move over to the Hong Kong version of the VI by uh, Pang Brothers. And uh, as for short opinions, uh, I have a very short one. It's still, in, in my opinion, a well-executed horror film that avoids being, uh, you, you, know, you know, you don't scoff at it despite it uh, approaching and uh, embracing all of those unavoidable tropes uh, because it's not an uh, an original story at all uh, but the movie really shines i think thanks to the emotional anchor that angelica lee represents uh, which is why i think it has survived and stayed relevant a little bit more because i was still affected by her story and i, ha- I have some notes on in terms of what the drama uh, uh, surrounding her is about so i'll throw it over to you ball uh, in short uh, what i want to say about vi yeah, I like it. It's um, I'm not a big horror guy uh, as as it is, um, and I have very particular tastes when it comes to horror. I like films that can scare me without jump scares, or without overly loud, you know, moments or music or things that are meant to shock you just by the sound design and make you pop out of your seat. Which are startles and not shocks, really. Yeah, yeah. I like stuff that can make me feel creeped out just by what they're doing on the screen itself and maybe by some of the music, but not by blaring and making me want to cover my eardrums. So this film does that. Um, There are other films over the years that have done that. One that I just pops in my head of, of late is the film It Follows, which has a very good concept and has some very creepy moments. But again, it's not doing the jump scare thing. Is that the one, by the way, where the uh, where the std is transferred from yes. people okay okay because uh, yeah. there's, an, there's an, I, I mix up titles some uh, sometimes there's a recent one it comes out at night kind of thing that's a different mm-hmm. movie it, it literally is called it comes at night or something so yeah okay, okay gotcha yeah um and and so for me that's the kind of horror that i like i think the ring does that you know especially the, the very sort of uh, famous end sequence, if you will. Um, but a lot of other films, just they, they just rely on the quick edit and the loud blarg to get you to pop out of your seat. And for me, that just doesn't work. And I don't mind if a film has it once, but 
a lot of films, a lot of horror films rely on it more than three times. And that's just too much. I think if you've got to do it more than uh, once or twice, then you need to get some new techniques to creep out your audience, at, le at least in my book. I also am not a big fan of gore. And I mean, uh, I know that a lot of people love, uh, you know, I have friends, people love, you know, the cannibal Holocaust stuff. And I, I like zombie films. I'm, I'm very much into the uh, Night of the Living Dead. But when you get a bit further in the series and it's more about, you know, seeing the insides of people on the outside, that's less appealing to me. And I have nothing against it. I know, again, people who love it and I say it's great. You judgmental prick, Paul. I can sense it in your voice now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's just my own That's just my own sensibility when it comes to horror. Fair enough. Absolutely. Um, um, I, I, I'm a fan of both. Uh, I, I, I get uh, so gleeful when it comes to physical gore, especially when it's as well executed as, for instance, one of the dead movies, uh, Day of the Dead, which is my favorite out of that trilogy because I think Tom Savini really hit it out of the park it's such a violent disgusting movie but it's a work of art the way they execute some of those effects man but uh, uh, I hear what you're saying uh, the um, the understated can be as uh, impactful as anything I mean for, for you uh, just to share a brief note on it uh, dramatically uh, does it hit you in any way uh, B.I. because it, it relies on her fear and her fright and of a new situation does that play with you at all yeah absolutely i think and the great thing to understand about this character that she's playing is that she's seeing stuff for the first time and she doesn't know what she's seeing right so she has to convey that physically not verbally and so there are moments where she's seeing things and and she's questioning things is like there's a great scene early on where she sees a dude out on the highway and she's like, is that normal? You know, she's got this reaction like she's not sure what to make of it. And she encounters other situations throughout the film where she's like questioning her own judgment. She's not sure where most of us would say, hey, that's not normal. You know, that's that's there. There's something wrong there. Um, and so I think she handles that really, really well. Where I think the downside of the drama that happens in all of this comes is firmly on the shoulders of Mr. Lawrence Cho. Well, you gotta applaud the filmmakers <laughs> for hiring someone who is 12 years old to play an adult. That must have been yeah, fun it's, for it's him. It's like, come on, <laughs> we don't need Dougie Hauser in this movie. Um, it's so, he's so insanely too young to play a psychotherapist in this movie. That's just, uh, I, 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 I fairly agree. Yeah. It's nothing against Lawrence Cho. I mean, he did, he did a movie early on called Merry-Go-Round, which is just delightful. Love that movie. And it, in this though, it's just it's completely miscast and it you know it that's the only thing for this film that i po immediately point to as as a point of criticism and but that's not anywhere near enough to say don't watch this movie exactly yeah. I'm, I'm i'm glad you said that because it stood out in 2002 that guy is young i'm sure there's young people in his profession but he's uh, he's not gelling with this role at all so to be fair, he's not actually that young. <laughs> Technically, he's old enough to have been in that position, but he's got this super baby face that makes him look like he's like 18. And it's just like, uh, no, I'm just not buying it, guys. Come on. Around this time, he was uh, part of the True for Dare movie, Sixth Floor Rear Flat as well, mm -hmm. which, uh, which, you know, it felt maybe that was a year or two later. I don't know. But he, he seemed to play... Uh, you know is well cast uh, visually so so to say and all of that uh, and i liked him in that movie he, he had some sweet scenes with that uh, elder actress that i can never remember the name of um, in uh, true for there but uh, anyway the pang brothers they they seem quite hellbent on uh, th this movie being uh, visually intense their composition in especially initially they're they're done out of uh, you, you almost feel a little bit of discomfort because there, there is no traditional composition. There's ominous ambience, uh, but they merely do that to sort of set up some atmosphere rather than being insecure filmmakers who can only think visually and not be story-driven directors. Because they are very clued into quickly that it's a sweet and gentle thing that she's on the verge of actually seeing for the first time. Those scenes are gentle and sweet, and um, 
very clever in their construction visually because the initial scenes where the, the light is too intense for her to keep the bandage off her face so she has it put on again those scenes are very clever because in those out of focus shots which makes sense totally i think it's a very clever choice that you can't focus in those out of focus shots you can find clues that people are already there that shouldn't be there but the pangs aren't insecure enough to make those moments be uh, either moment or have and they're they're devoid of any ominous ambience right so they they drop very clever clues there without being uh, look at us what we just set up as directors <laughs> they don't draw attention to themselves they 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 keep us focused on the, the sweet nature but the, the, there's a difficulty of of adjusting to the intensity of seeing for the first time and the intensity of the lights and all of that it and even that is the probably the most scary sensation will be in all of these scenes the scary sensation of light and the these new sights for her and that's before they've dropped the fact that there's persons there that shouldn't be there like we we don't register it the first time but we register later on of course Uh, and 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 i think that balance is clever because it makes us focus on her rise upwards i mean obviously this is going to change her life this is supposed to change her life in a positive way she has plans now she wants to learn to write she wants to learn to to read and not just braille obviously which she probably has for many many years so and that focus i think is more sound paul uh focus on her you know you know the, the positive nature of her current journey and then slowly twist that yeah, it it I mean it it works well and again they have this sense to bring things into the light that you normally we talk about a ghost film, uh we talked about, you know, a Chinese ghost story or we talk about the troublesome nights and those all tend to happen in nighttime scenes because the ghosts often because of the world building ghosts can't be out in the day or in the sunlight or something like that and they decide here no we're going to flip that on its head. And we're going to do a majority of our ghost encounters in the daytime. And normally you would think that that necessarily wouldn't work because, you know, one of the things that happens is we're in a dark theater and we've got that dark ambience on screen and everything's dark. And so we're already tense from that darkness where we feel more comfortable looking at a daytime scene. But they still manage to make it work very, very well, make it very, very creepy and, you know, just really, I think, a couple sequences that are just burned in my brain as a result. Yeah, very much so. I mean, so someone just standing there, even though it's done in this out-of-focus POV way, sounds like the simplest image to stage. Physically, it is. But you, when done right, you craft this curiosity in um, in the audience, and it's eerie when done right. Uh, being out-of-focus here is contextually correct, because she she can't at all times remain um, uh, remain fully focused, uh, and and those images that we wait a minute was that or was it as a matter of fact reality we don't firmly know so they are cleverly playing with us they're not signaling too much or too hard meaning that that daytime scene that you you're referring to even though we'll leave these surprises for uh, for the listening audience to, to find out for themselves a lot of those aren't. They focus on them, we're supposed to notice them, but they're not accompanied by, as I like to say, the 5.1 boom, or any insecure oral cue. So we 110% know that we were supposed to notice that. They keep it, I mean, we, we, they, they, they keep that balance so sound and correct that we, we notice it 100% without them waving in front of us, like, look at us, look at us, look at us, this means something. And boy, is that even more fun, because then you put yourself to work a little bit, and literally it leads to this. You're engaged in the story. And if that isn't sound balanced, then I don't know what is, you know. There's a great sequence that happens ever so briefly. It happens on uh, the Eastrail KCR, which is now the the MTR. And uh, she's sitting down with Lawrence Cho and there's a window view next to them and they enter a tunnel for a brief second and there's an effect that happens that it's a blink and you you miss it because it's so subtle 
but it's there and it's that kind of ambience that they kind of throw in in places that makes this work so well and surprisingly it's enough to get by because if you think about other films like um Anhoy's Visible Secret I was about to mention that once you talked about the subway <laughs> yeah they had you know major problems with uh, the MTR um and had to cut sequences out because yep. you know people are in Hong Kong still very superstitious today and the MTR was afraid it was going to affect you know how people were going to see and use their service but it's so subtle here and it's so momentary i don't know if they just decided to let it go or they didn't even notice it well it wasn't part of the advertisement that was the problem with visible secret they put that as part of the advertisement uh, probably advertised in the effing subway (laughs) so so yeah i remember that because uh that sequence um one or two sequences with actress joe cock it was taken out there, but they, it was put into the Japanese DVD of the movie, so I've seen the full version of it. But uh, but but then again, when the Pangs decide to crank the visuals and really um, make it intrusive on us, it it never falls into the age-old way of scaring us. Like that initial scene with the, the uh, I say moaning old lady, it isn't that kind of moaning, but uh, there's an old lady that sort of circles her and the sound circles her. And that imagery is really creepy because it's jumpy and unpredictable. So therefore, no scares feels like old hat to anything. Mm. And, and all of this closing in on her, being isolated incidents, going to almost full on. It, it, it's not this in the movie, but it's essentially for her, it's almost 24-7 at the later point in the movie that this is all now surrounding her. But initially now, disappears sporadically and she doesn't understand it, obviously, at that point. And it's skillful visual communication and uh, we also know without anyone being Mr. Exposition that it might mean that uh, someone just died that and she sees that person as, as a matter of fact it sort of does mean that and it's an early sort of hint without people stopping the movie to do exposition dumps uh, and I don't know, it's it's obviously clever and clear writing and uh, coming from filmmakers that came off as very visual, especially in regards to Bangkok Dangerous, but bringing uh, a narrative sense and a belief in uh, their skills in that in com- combination with visuals and uh, sometimes complex visual effects. Uh, I, I always admire, admire that uh, balance because it's a fragile balance between depicting ominous horror and spirits spirits visiting her and using how you use colors and filters uh, because we've seen it so much so it's so it's a fragile balance between coming off as somewhat fresh and something to engage in versus well i've seen that hundreds of times uh, in the other troublesome night movies or whatever so it always came off as fresh to me and it still feels uh, maybe not fresh but still well executed because um we we do uh we do emotionally engage in it and and especially when what we emotionally engage in is the fact that she her life isn't turning around for the better she's losing things that means something to her especially in regards to her losing her place in the in the orchestra for the blind you know she plays violin and she can't she's excluded because she is no longer disabled in that regard and they don't make that saccharine and melodramatic as such, Paul. They just have that be delivered in um, in a dialogue scene. Very plain, very matter-of-fact. And that stuff gets to me because we understand pretty full on that that meant something. And now that's taken away from her. Plus, there's stuff going on that I don't understand. I mean, it, it builds towards a heartbreak that isn't um, too saccharine or too melodramatic, in my opinion. So... Um, and it still does. It, that that power it still has. Uh, it did in two thousand and two, and still does uh, in twenty eighteen. Yeah, and I think too the we talked a little bit about the twist, which kind of happens mid movie, uh, which is great because in a traditional kind of Hollywood story setting, that twist would be at the end, and they they might actually just leave it there, right? As a oh, and didn't you know almost like a sixth sense kind of thing this whole time didn't you know this was that was what was going on but no they choose to put their twist in the middle of the movie and say hey we've got x amount of story to continue so rather than leave you with a twilight zone kind of ending 
we've got this much more exp exposition to go. And it kind of shifts gears a little bit. It's not really a detective story, but it kind of is in that sense, um, as you have more story to figure out. Yeah, and, and it feels like a natural third act um, when they switch to Thailand and all of that. And we, we obviously won't spoil anything in regards to the ending, and, ending, and I want to keep the scares revealed to an absolute minimum. So I'll just say this, and maybe you can relate uh, your... Uh, tell us your memory of the um, of the cinema viewing of this but uh, I, I watched it initially on DVD at home because this wasn't going to play in Sweden and certainly not in my small town so obviously Hong Kong imports it was and uh, cheap Hong Kong imports back, back in 2002 you know 40 Hong Kong dollars or maybe 60 but um, the calligraphy scene maybe it's the one that singled out the most and I, and I don't know is, it, is she merely learning how to write or is she literally training to uh, Crop calligraphy because she she has expressed uh, obviously a desire to learn to write properly, but it seems like she's uh, doing you know uh, sign signage using a uh, do, doing paint strokes. So it's more calligraphy she's doing in the senior. Well, no, it's it's a bit of both because she up to this point does, she's not literate. She doesn't know how to read. Right. So she's basically you know learning like a student uh, a young student would learn um, how to do. Uh, basic character strokes and you know using the brush and pen like students will learn in their elementary school primary school and and because i couldn't read this scene that was not a bad pun but i, I literally couldn't read this scene where it was going because they weren't telegraphing as such when whatever happens in the calligraphy scene i want to keep it vague happens the shock that happens it freaked me out one because it's scary as hell and uh it's a nightmare when someone comes at you that way but what happened at the same time was my phone rang at the same time so I, just as that started happening half a second later the phone rang and i was fumbling with my remote trying to pause the damn movie i was freaked out the phone is ringing who is it and you know it was uh it wasn't connected to the phone or anything it was just like i was in my moment i'm never sick ah! and that was at home what was it like with an audience when that shit happened? Yeah, that was, I mean, that's one of two scenes that is probably the closest to a almost traditional jump scare, um, but it's just super creepy. And it, it really does, you know, fr it, it freaked a lot of us out in the cinema. And But the other scene that I think that stands out and one that they expanded on in the second film is the elevator scene with... Um, a, a very it, it's it's very traditional in the way that especially the shot of the feet that that particular ghost is moving but the thing i can't figure out is because the guy who's the ghost looks like he's got half his face missing maybe from a tumor removal or something i can't tell if that's a real guy or that was an effect that they somehow did back in 2002 well, well i'll tell you this much uh, the fx house central they do some smashing work here that has that that is clever enough for that to come through via cg i think uh, one of my favorite effects is not even that uh, the the scene where she wakes up in the middle of the night and it seems like the room is changing as like a clock is swinging back and forth like a uh, almost like it's uh, fast speed photography, like the sun is going through the room, but the swing back and forth reveals that it goes from her room to another room, from her room to another room, which is just a swipe back and forth, which I think is very clever. And uh, Centro mm. do some very clever effects in terms of spirits, you know, walking through walls and walking away from us. They're not fully seen. So I can just imagine that, that, that that's uh, someone with... Uh, a green screen sock over half their face or something, and they managed to do it. I'm, I'm, uh, they, they were that good in 20, uh, mm. 2002 Central, which I'm not, not sure is a Hong Kong-based company or if it's a um, uh, crew from Thailand they brought in, because they, this movie actually has Thai crew on it as well. So, so your guess is as good as mine, but uh, if you can't guess, Paul, what does that say about uh, the uh, quality of effect? Yeah, it's, it's that much more creepy to be sure. Um, I guess it's a good point to, to also mention one of the things that happened in the cinema that just can't happen at home. And uh, this is this is a more traditional jump scare that they cleverly did. 
and I've talked about this before, maybe on this series and I think over on uh, East Screen, West Screen as well. So at the start of the movie, you've got trailers, you know, and the lights come down and they've got some really great um, uh, opening credits here, basically kind of like a uh, Frighteners style wall, I guess. And uh, it's like these hands and sometimes faces kind of coming through what is essentially latex, but looks really creepy. You know what my visual reference for that was? I, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to get that. And maybe this speaks volume of me that I pulled this. It reminded me of uh, one of the brief scene from the CD-ROM game, Seventh Guest. You walk up to a okay. pain, painting at one point and you see hands yeah. trying to push through it. That was my visual reference. Yeah. But you're right. That that That's totally either credits from the Frighteners or... Um, uh, so some visual scenes from from that movie and but it works really well and so anyway we're all sitting in the theater and the initial music starts and the the you know you see like a hand swiping and suddenly the film breaks right and you know it's the this was well before they had the digital digital projection so it's traditional 35 millimeter film and the film breaks and you see a, a bit of the film kind of burn off on screen and the lights go up and everybody's kind of like sitting there waiting and people start looking back because that, that's the thing you do, right? The, the the film breaks and you start to look back. Is somebody in the projection booth? Is somebody, you know, on top of this? And then suddenly this massive skull face flashes up on the cinema screen, big loud blaring and just everybody is just like, blah. And, and then the credits continue on. It's cheap. It's cheap. But they got us because they used that they used that thing, which at that point in time, everybody was so used to, you know, every once in a while the film breaks and you're kind of like, oh, you're suddenly taken out of the movie. And no, you're not. You're still in the movie. This is part of the movie. And they just they they did that jump scare. And for me, I don't like jump scares, but that was that was clever and it was tricky and sneaky. And, and they got us. And it's one of the things that I kept wondering, I'm like. All right, are they going to keep that in on the video version, or is you know because it's just it's just not something that can work on video, right? Because you don't have film breaking and burning in front of the in front of the lens. Remember, uh, remember Gremlins too. What they did there? What did they do? I don't. They, they, had, they had a scene where the Gremlins actually um, uh, mess up the film. They're like daring oh, yeah, the projection yeah, yeah, yeah. booth, but when they did yeah. that for video, they had to shoot something else to to be relevant for video. It's that's the thing. I was like, you know, are they going to keep it in? And they didn't keep it in, unfortunately. And I don't even think it ever made a special feature or anything, which is a shame because it's it's now just a moment that, you know, people who experienced it have it. And, you know, it will be lost, I guess, once our generation is gone. What a big what a big F you actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm surprised, you know, because if some of the older grannies and, and grandpas, I mean, I, it, that was shocking enough to maybe elicit some some medical responses if, <laughs> if possible. I don't know, but wow. um, it was certainly a freaky moment to to be sure. And then the rest of the movie proceeds to be be super creepy. So um, there you have it. They only did a thing with the DVD. I remember from my notes, but or maybe my DVD was faulty. But the old Hong Kong DVD, they they, they put like the um, Panorama logo. Uh, they were the company that put it out there. They, they 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 it starts on the DVD and it starts pix pixelating and crap, and you think like, oh my god, I got a bad DVD. Like, and Hong Kong DVDs were very bad at that time. That could have happened. And then it's a gag, too. It's a DVD gag, but that that's not in the movie. That's the preceding logos so hmm. uh, so maybe that was the we can do that on video I mean, maybe, maybe that was their, <laughs> their uh, compromise if you will but uh, yeah hmm. that would be would have been cool because they, the movie is never that loud again as, uh, as we talked of because um, the, the escalation of anything and, and constant sights and, and Angelica Lee's fear it's played so well it's not played as a lot of panic and hysteria but it, it just fear she's a girl who doesn't know what to do and she can explain it clearly without too much hysteria. Granted, it's hard to get anyone to believe her. But I really admired the scenes where Angelica is, and the script obviously dictates this, where, where she can compose herself and explain clearly that this is what I'm seeing. And your heart, your heart breaks for her because the, the burden is believable. And it's not a blessed gift at all, obviously, seeing this. And, and now seeing, period is not a blessed gift uh, for her. And I, I, I won't spoil it, but obviously her biggest emotional outbursts uh, concerning 
loss of a character. You, you, you know what this is, but I'm, I'm, so I'm going to keep it that vague. That, that required a tissue or two, because uh, she, um, her connection with that character was, uh, was very sweet and very real. Mm. And to combine it with um, the horror-centric predicament of the story, that, that emotional core really stuck with me then and it still sticks with me now and if if she earned any any uh, you know if uh, the awards juries were convinced at any point i think it's that point that oh this girl's got it she's special and um it uh it re- really cemented the fact that the, the eye has um survived you know amidst the scares it's the emotions that just oof, like a dagger man structurally it keeps us guessing too um because uh, as Paul said, uh, after an hour in, we got a got a reveal, and uh, we switched to Thailand. So they 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 start to put the puzzle pieces in place because we've gotten fragmented imagery, which just seems like sort of a Tony Scott like uh, visual trickery. Uh, that's a very um, very can be irritating, if you will. But there's a point to that that uh, those. Not frantic, but uh, that, that stuttery imagery. It starts to make sense as we reach, reach Thailand, and they get us to coherent places. And I mean, for Lawrence, he works better when he's her travel partner rather than her doctor. At least those scenes when they're together, I I, I started to disconnect from the fact that he's he's this baby-faced doctor. Uh, so the Thai sections with those two worked a little bit better. Like it's still miscast. Boise, but at least that it wasn't as uh, bothersome, uh, especially now that he's in the movie in every scene along with her, essentially. So, so at least, at least we have that. But he's um, he's still the weak point of the movie, and um, that's uh, that's not going to change. I fall out in two thousand and two, uh, and still thinks it, uh, still think it uh, to this day. So, um, is he acting anymore? <laughs> I didn't even check if he's pursued. And uh, deepened his acting chops, uh, but uh, I know he was in uh, movies for for a while back then. But uh, Merry-Go-Round being probably the better one. Uh, that's the one. If you see it, uh, it feels uh, very jarring to see Eric Tsang being all uh, bloodied and battered because he was um, he got beaten up during the making yeah. of Merry-Go-Round, and that's in not not the beating as in the movie, but the fact that he's uh, quite battered. He, it's simply how the character looks in that movie. So quite quite jarring. Uh, I think. Um, I'm not, not going to say anything else, but because obviously you shouldn't say much of the Thai section that that's obviously is wrapping up the movie, so we're not going to uh, spoil it. But uh, at least it's not one of those horror movies that, um, for me anyway, and it did, this is just a short statement, but for me anyway, it's not a horror movie that completely reverts all good that it's set up and crashes and burns during the ending or anything. I think... Uh, it keeps its uh, thread solid and it's not cheap. Uh, they don't use cheap storytelling trickery that just screams, another, another one that did that thing. Keeping it vague, I just think that uh, it earned its uh, earned its minute one and minute 90 easily. So I was engaged throughout, uh, throughout all of it. So so I'm, I'll, I'll conclude my notes right there. So uh, anything else you want to say, non-spoilery or... Or um, or whatever. So the floor is yours. Uh, no, I mean, if you are somebody who's not averse to horror, uh, this is one to check out, especially if you like it lighter and a bit more subtle, as I do. Um, one kind of minor note, since we did talk about crazy rich Asians at the start of uh, the show, uh, there is one actor here who appears in that, and his name here is listed as Fong Chin Fat. He also goes by the acting name. Pierre Pung, and he plays uh, Dr. Yuck, who's the doctor that they meet up with in Thailand in the latter part of the movie. Um, He's got a pretty major role in Crazy Rich Asians, so, you know, he doesn't have a lot of work in his uh, filmography over on IMDb, but uh, he's one that I did recognize his name, and when I was researching for this, I was like, hey, uh, it's him. Uh, Here he is once again. Yeah, he plays a Mandarin-speaking Thai character. That's a great scene because you've got Angelica speaking Cantonese and I think both Lawrence and him are speaking Mandarin and they're all just speaking sync sound and understanding each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's and then later you've got some people speaking Thai and translating and it's it's all good. Yeah, this uh, sort of um, 
hipster throwback professional vibe where we could hear everybody in movies. I know it's like a <laughs> radical thing, but yes, it's not as common nowadays, you know, which is a shame because uh, the more slick the movies got, the more jarring it became to hear uh, completely post-dubbed soundtracks. My thing, maybe, only, but uh, I I agree. I very much appreciate that uh, the uh, natural flow back and forth was... Uh, well, they even include some English. Uh, very brief English. Uh, so um, it all works out. So just off the bat, question. Did you think she she uh, was worthy of uh, Best Actress? Hong Kong Film Award, is that, this the kind of performance that that uh, deserves that honor at the end of the year yeah yeah i i'd say based on based not just on the dialogue but a lot of the physical stuff she had to do to emote i think it was well deserved despite uh fei wong returning to hong kong screens in 2002 and it's jeff lao and wong kawaii and it's funny as hell that it's still a jelka that deserves that award rather than fei wong yeah i think so it's uh, i think she flexed herself a little bit more in this than uh, not to discount Fei Wong in, in uh, that movie but uh. probably worth a return to some of those Jeff Lau movies because I think I've got a lot of context that I need to catch up on and understand you know we talked of in a previous episode that Chinese Odyssey 2002 references um, the, the opera Love Return to quite a distinct degree but I would love to know more about what the heck is going on in Eagle shooting heroes if I if if it's even easy to okay watch two other movies rather than uh, read 10 books and watch 10 TV series (laughs) from 1985 then you'll then you'll caught up uh, you know because um, I would love to know because it seems like a good time Uh, especially Eagle shooting heroes but uh, don't don't ask me to like break break that down because I had no idea I have no idea what went on it was loud. It was loud. They had fun. Yeah. They had fun, those people. <laughs> That's for sure. I uh, got the laser disc, laser disc though, so uh, I'm ready. I'm ready. But uh, we'll see what happens in the future. As for availability of uh, VI, uh, it was initially, initially released by Panorama in Hong Kong. Uh, I couldn't find any subsequent DVD or Blu-ray versions for Hong Kong, though. And uh, this edition is uh, either out of print or out of stock. You can get it on VCD, but uh, don't... don't uh, Try and get a standard definition version for heaven's sake. And you can, because uh, Lionsgate did release the movie on DVD in America. It's presumably uncut at 98 minutes. Subtitled. Uh, possibly has the same extras as my Nordic version does, which means it might have the making of. And that version is out there. It's very much affordable, so they haven't price jacked that shit uh, to $50 just because it's old or anything. So uh, do, um, do get it if you like uh, the movie. It uh, should... Um, be uh, an upgrade if you have the hong kong dvd then that should be a decent enough upgrade so um check it out uh, all options were like below ten dollars on the amazon marketplace so that should be should be a good deal especially you, if you paul want to upgrade your your current dvd and, get, and, get, and possibly get some extras then uh, that's uh, that's out there so we are done for this episode of Podcast on Fire, focusing on one movie, but as I've said before, if there's some background to be talked of, some context to be injected into the discussion, I think that's worth doing sometimes, and therefore I'm stripping episodes to one movie only to spare our own voices, I suppose, but also the running time of the episodes, they get a little bit leaner. And I have to say that's a little bit of inspiration directed towards your podcast. You always keep that show lean not mean but uh, you give it lean and easily digestible rather than to squeeze two movies in tons of uh, news 40 minutes of lost movies watched and three hours each week so i really appreciate east screen west screen for keeping uh, the structure very very clean and lean and approachable and digestible uh, so um that's why i return every week and that's uh, why it's also an honor to uh, to guest every now and again so uh that's a uh, my praise to you and let's just lead into the plug for your show therefore well thank you very much sir and it's again a pleasure to be here and always a pleasure to have you on as well and it's if i could just speak to the leanness we're not that lean i mean my my goal is to be out after 60 minutes and we usually run over it's to like, like the an hour one, 10 doesn't one fifteen, one twenty. 120 yeah, um, it's, you it's, know it's rarely that it's 110 uh, yeah. most i mean the crazy rich asians show demanded a little bit of a more expanded discussion you had more people on so don't, don't panic uh, of that it uh, flies by like that man yeah. Well, thank you indeed. And yes, if you are not familiar with our show, please do check us check us out at East Screen 
West screen. Uh, that is at concast.com. Excellent. And uh, for the rest of the contact information, really quick from our side, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. You'll find the back catalog of this show, but also our uh, other shows on Korean cinema, on Japanese cinema, on uh, ninja movies, or ninja movies, uh, from from those Godfrey Ho movies. That, that was all, always the um, pronunciation in those IFD movies. Yeah, like, he's a ninja, not a ninja. A ninja is like Franco Nero in End of a Ninja, right? <laughs> uh, but ninjas, the, that's the Richard Harrison type. So we talk about those movies, we talk about Taiwanese movies, Lisi movies, do bonus episodes every now and again, and even audio commentaries infrequently, but we still do them every now and again. We're planning one as we speak. At any rate, so all of that is available in the show post on podcastonfire.com and uh, the social media links are available via buttons at the top of our website. But in the meantime... This is going to be a sunny off where we have talked the eye with Paul Fox of East Screen West Screen. So we're going to go change our underpants now after talking about such scary sights. So uh, especially you talking of your past cinema memories of the scary skull and all of that. So, <laughs> but uh, regardless, uh, take us out, buddy, and say bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.